Trapcast Express. Trapcast Express, it's Monday, September 19th, 2022. Does the Holy Spirit still guide the church? That question was asked by Eric Sammons of Crisis Magazine on September 8th. Considering that Sammons wrote a book called Deadly Indifference, How the Church Lost Her Mission and How We Can Reclaim It, I'd say that is not the kind of fellow you'll want to consult about questions of whether or how the Holy Spirit guides the Catholic Church. And indeed, his write-up was the usual shallow treatment of a very serious and important topic, with a predictable conclusion, of course. It reaffirmed once more the popular recognize and resist position, according to which the Vicar of Christ can teach or legislate or decree one thing, and then a magazine editor like Eric Sammons can decide to disagree and go against that in public and tell everyone else to follow suit because, hey, the Pope isn't always infallible, and besides, what about the Arian crisis? And, oh my gosh, we once had Popes who were moral scoundrels. That's pretty much the level of theology and church history at which Salmons operates, and it's utterly disgraceful. Because these are really serious matters, and a Catholic cannot simply refuse submission to the Roman pontiff and then point to some other bishop that he chooses to like instead, whether that be Arch- Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre or Athanasius Schneider or Ted Strickland, and then declare those bishops the safe norm to follow, because that is not how it works in the Catholic Church. The Pope has immediate universal jurisdiction over every single Catholic. That is a dogma. You can look it up in Vatican I. That means you are subject to the Pope, right, if you're Catholic. So, If we assume for a minute, for the sake of argument, that Francis is the Pope and his modernist establishment is the Catholic Church, then you must submit to his rule. And what he teaches, what he legislates and decrees, at least in his official documents, that is for you to accept, okay, period. If an auxiliary bishop from Kazakhstan says something different, then you do not have the option of simply going by that instead, not even if you're in that diocese. Now, of course, Eric Sammons just so happens to conclude that the way the Holy Ghost still guides the church, and he means the Novus Ordo Church, of course, that sorry heap of apostasy, sacrilege, and blasphemy that continually leads souls to hell— is by giving us shepherds just like the ones that he, Sammons, happens to agree with. Even if, or rather (laughs) precisely because, they differ from Francis and oppose him to an extent. This is nuts. By the same token, one might as well disagree with Schneider or Strickland and instead embrace 
you know, Blaise Supich or Robert McElroy or Reinhard Marx, right? They at least have the full approval of the supposed pope. But no, 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 says Sammons, those individuals are not being led by the Holy Spirit. They are being unfaithful to the Holy Ghost. Let's look at what Eric Sammons says verbatim. Having touched on some troublesome points of church history, he says that the Holy Ghost guides the church only with a light touch. Then he adds, very casually, the following, quote, He allows sinful men to corrupt the church's institutions, to proclaim heresy, and to degrade the witness of the church to the point of near silence. The Holy Spirit's guidance is just that, guidance. The church is not a puppet through which the Holy Spirit controls all the strings. Such a setup would violate one of God's greatest gifts to mankind, free will. So, how does the Holy Spirit guide the church? Instead of controlling her, he influences each individual member and particularly but not exclusively, each member of the hierarchy. This influence can be either accepted or rejected by each individual. If many individuals accept it, the church will see good times, with growth and examples of holiness shining through. But if most individuals do not accept the Holy Spirit's guidance, then we have times such as the Arian crisis or today's crisis." In other words, the office of the papacy, the magisterium of the Holy See, in the final analysis, it's all basically useless because it can be corrupted by sinful men. It means nothing and has no guarantees except perhaps that once-in-a-blue-moon infallible ex-cathedra pronouncement. Now, what documentation, what evidence from church teaching does Salmons provide in support of his thesis. None, of course. He is effectively asking the reader to take his word for it all. He thinks the church is guided by the Holy Spirit in the sense that God sends graces, and if people accept those graces, then things turn out well. And if they don't, then you have hell on earth. You have the papal magisterium teaching heresy and leading the Catholic sheep astray. And I guess it's then up to each individual believer to figure out which bishop, which cleric is currently acting in accordance with God's graces, which pope is currently teaching the truth, and which pope is a heretic who must be avoided under pain of damnation. That's quite the arc of salvation, huh? I mean, any Protestant could say that about his church. And then, if some bishops resist and others don't, well, I guess then you have to decide which group of bishops is right, or if even any of them is right, and to what extent. And we're supposed to believe that that is the church outside of which there is no salvation? It sounds like there's no salvation inside of it either. But hey, Eric Sammons is there to help you sort it all out. Folks, this is considered traditional Catholicism in our time. It is beyond the pale. So, 
What should you do then? Should you take my word instead of Samons's word? No, not at all. Rather, take, for example, the word of Pope Leo XIII. Quote, For he who is the spirit of truth, inasmuch as he proceedeth both from the Father, who is the eternally true, and from the Son, who is the substantial truth, receiveth from each both his essence and the fullness of all truth. This truth he communicates to his church, guarding her by his all-powerful help from ever falling into error and aiding her to foster daily more and more the germs of divine doctrine and to make them fruitful for the welfare of the peoples. And since the welfare of the peoples for which the church was established absolutely requires that this office should be continued for all time, the Holy Ghost perpetually supplies life and strength to preserve and increase the church. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another paraclete, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth. Unquote. And that last sentence is a quote from St. John's Gospel, chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. So that is from the encyclical Divinum Illud, published in 1897, paragraph 5. That was Pope Leo Thirteenth, Or consider the following words of Pope Pius XI, who wrote in 1930, quote, A characteristic of all true followers of Christ, lettered or unlettered, is to suffer themselves to be guided and led in all things that touch upon faith or morals by the Holy Church of God through its supreme pastor, the Roman Pontiff who is himself guided by Jesus Christ, our Lord, unquote. And that's from the encyclical letter Casti Canubii, paragraph 104. Now, ironically, that encyclical is quite popular among semi-trads because, you know, it's the great encyclical on Christian marriage. And, of course, it includes a prohibition of contraception. But uh, somehow that part that I just quoted doesn't get that much attention. Ah, but the Pope isn't always infallible, right? That's right. But then neither is Eric Sammons or Athanasius Schneider or Peter Kwasniewski. Besides, God never told you that you should listen to any of these fellows, but he did tell you to listen to the Pope, and not just when he's infallible. See, the deposit of faith was entrusted to the apostles, specifically to St. Peter and his successors, to guard and interpret and guarantee. It was not entrusted to any other individual of our choosing, whether his last name be Burke or Lefebvre or Schneider or anyone else. And see, that's why it is so important to understand that Francis is not a valid pope. There is no substitute for a true pope. That is why Sedevacantism is so important. It's not a bunch of Sedevacantists arrogantly making their view into a dogma. It's applying the correct pre-Vatican II teaching on the papacy to the current situation. 
And that pre-Vatican II understanding of the papacy, we have an obligation to retain. It's not optional. But once we apply that to Jorge Bergoglio in particular, we find out that the man cannot be the Pope. The papacy is not just an empty label. It is a reality that has real consequences. Now, let me briefly say one thing about Pope Liberius and St. Athanasius and the Arian heresy, because a lot of people think that Pope Liberius sided with Arius, and that whereas St. Athanasius remained Orthodox, the Pope did not. That is false. But don't listen to me about that. Listen to the Pope's. For example, Pope St. Anastasius I, who reigned shortly after Liberius, from 399 to 401. In his letter, Dat Mihi Plurinum, St. Anastasius mentions Pope Liberius in a list of holy people who endured exile for the Catholic faith. And you can find that in Denzinger, number 93. Or listen to Pope Pius IX. He said this, quote, and previously the Arians falsely accused Liberius, also our predecessor, to the Emperor Constantine because Liberius refused to condemn St. Athanasius, Bishop of Alexandria, and refused to support their heresy. Unquote. That's from the encyclical letter Quartus Supra of Pius IX, released in 1873. That's paragraph 16. And lastly, let's look at Pope Benedict XV. Not only does he name Pope Liberius as one of those who preferred exile to compromising the faith, he specifically notes that St. Athanasius was confirmed in the Orthodox faith because he relied on the papal judgment of Liberius. Here's the quote from the encyclical of Pope Benedict XV. Quote, the ancient fathers, especially those who held the more illustrious chairs of the East, since they accepted these privileges as proper to the pontifical authority, took refuge in the apostolic see whenever heresy or internal strife troubled them. For it alone promised safety in extreme crises. Basil the Great did so, as did the renowned defender of the Nicene Creed, Athanasius, as well as John Chrysostom. For these inspired fathers of the Orthodox faith appealed from the, council of, from the councils of bishops to the supreme judgment of the Roman pontiffs, according to the prescriptions of the ecclesiastical canons. Who can say that they were wanting in conformity to the command which they had from Christ? Indeed, lest they should prove faithless in their duty, some went fearlessly into exile, as did Liberius and Silverius and Martinus, unquote. So that's Pope Benedict XV, the encyclical Principi Apostolorum Petro, published in 1920, paragraph 3. So there we have it. The Holy Ghost guides the Catholic Church above all by keeping the apostolic see from defecting. The Roman See alone has that guarantee. Vatican I, the first Vatican Council, teaches that explicitly. 
quoting the words of the Fourth Council of Constantinople as follows, quote, Since that saying of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, cannot fail of its effect, the words spoken are confirmed by their consequences. For in the apostolic see, the Catholic religion has always been preserved unblemished and sacred doctrine been held in honor. Since it is our earnest desire to be in no way separated from this faith and doctrine, we hope that we may deserve to remain in that one communion which the Apostolic See preaches, for in it is the whole and true strength of the Christian religion. Unquote. All other dioceses in the world can defect from the true faith, but the See of Rome cannot. But if Francis is the Pope, then the See of Rome has defected. Ergo, he cannot be the Pope. That is the only possible conclusion without giving up the Catholic faith. And therefore, we embrace Sedevacantism rather than recognize and resist traditionalism, because while the See of Rome cannot defect, it can be vacant. And yes, that raises a lot of other questions and difficulties, and we have to leave a number of things to mystery, trusting and believing in God and his promises. But what we can say with certainty is that the solution is not found in accepting a defected apostolic see and just picking some other bishop to follow. That other bishop or priest or whatever doesn't have the divine assistance. And if you think he does, well, then that's based on your own private judgment and contradicted by the teaching of the Catholic Church. Ladies and gentlemen, the key takeaway here today is what Vatican I and Constantinople IV teach so beautifully and so clearly, that the divine assistance the promises of Christ to St. Peter and his lawful successors cannot fail in their effects and are therefore confirmed in their consequences. Now it's time to acknowledge the consequences. Tradcast Express is a production of Novos Ordo Watch. Check us out at tradcast.org, and if you like what we're doing, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution at novosordowatch.org slash donate.